Broadcasting live to the world now, it's Sheila Zielinski. Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show. Of course, this week, we have the big climate summit. The United Nations Climate Change Conference in Paris, the 21st yearly session of the Conference of the Parties to the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, that's UNFCCC, and the 11th session of the Meeting of the Parties to the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, and the conference objective is to achieve a legally binding and universal agreement on climate from all the nations of the world to be signed this Saturday. And so I've invited four very special guests on this climate roundtable to discuss what exactly is going on at this United Nations Climate Change Conference. And to join me is Mark Morano from Climate Depot, best-selling author Christopher C. Horner, renowned climatologist Dr. Timothy Ball, and from the Cornwall Alliance, Dr. Calvin Beisner on this roundtable today. So let's start off with my favorite, the godfather of the climate denial movement, Rolling Stone magazine calls him climate killer. It's none other than Mark Morano from climatedepot.com. I personally call him the Chuck Norris of global warming skepticism, and it is sincerely my pleasure to have him on. I'm a huge fan. Mark Morano, welcome. Thank you, Shelley. Happy to be here. So now you're in Paris at the COP21 Climate Conference. Of course, we have the Washington Times reporting groups asking for notorious climate-denying groups to be denied accreditation to the climate talks. Notorious climate-denying groups? What's your take on that? Well, actually, they have wanted posters around the city of Paris. I'm just actually walking by the uh, Arc de Triomphe today, Charles de Gaulle Avenue, and boom, I see my face on a wanted poster on the streets of Paris. I mean, that's how they're all plastered all over. And they say wanted for being a criminel du climate, which means climate criminal. And others on that list as well, Myron Ebel, Chris Horner. And there is, there is a petition movement to not allow the, the UN to let us into this comment. Now, I'm calling you from the belly of the beast. I'm actually here at the media center inside the UN Climate Summit in Paris right now. And what they've done is they've restricted us. In previous years, we've had a lot more people be able to get in. We used to have a booth this week with our information. We couldn't get any of that. We only could get two credentials all week. And we also couldn't have a press conference. We've normally held a press conference. We bring in skeptical scientists. We brought in an Apollo 7 astronaut last year. Uh, and this year, they would let us do none of that. So they are tightening the reins. It's pretty stunning. I mean, when you have author James Dellingpole, of course, we all know Chris Horney, you just mentioned from CEI. It's stunning 
the lengths these guys are going to shut down so-called deniers. You've got these ones, as you know, like Naomi Oreskes and others calling for deniers to be even prosecuted under RICO. You've got David the Hack Suzuki there saying stiff penalties for these climate criminals like us. What do you say to this insanity, Mark? Well, it just keeps going. We have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in our new film, Climate Hustle, an exclusive interview talking about putting skeptics in jail. And he actually says they need three hots and a cot at The Hague with the other war criminals. And then we have people calling for Nuremberg-style trials for global warming skeptics. NASA's lead global warming scientist, James Hansen, called for crimes against humanity trials to be done against global warming skeptics. This is not the scientific method. This is not your average scientific issue. You know one side has a weak case when they will not allow dissent, they will not allow debate, and if any scientist dare speak up, they're threatened with jail or execution or prosecution. This is what we were reduced to, and then this is how the UN can say, well, there's no scientists who disagree. That's because you've tried to use every tactic available to silence any dissent. Well, absolutely. And of course, you're right smack dab in the mother of all green rallies here at this, I call it eco-friendly, carbon-neutral, guy-11, pagan-death club here. I mean, do you kind of feel like you're right smack dab in the middle of a bad Twilight episode over there? Well, I walked in today, and I was immediately accosted by a reporter from the Smog blog who tried to secretly record me, and then I finally said, are you recording me? And then they admitted it. And they, they were following me around. Then I uh, did a Norwegian television interview, and I was giving my interview, and people started gathering around, delegates here who were stunned. I, and I kept saying really loud and having a lot of fun, we hope they fail. And they go, what's your message? <laughs> we hope they fail at this summit. We hope total failure. And I told them that we're rooting for the Chinese to ruin this whole deal. And people were gathering around, and after it was over, people came up to me and were like, what are you doing here? How can you be saying these things? And and they were irritated that I was even here. One dissenting voice in this entire conference center, and they're annoyed that I'm even here. Well, and I'm sure what's going to annoy them much more than that is the long-awaited climate hustle, your new documentary, which I'm so excited about. Tell the listeners, Mark, about climate hustle. I believe skeptics long-awaited antidote to Al Gore's cult classic and inconvenient truth or as I call it power grab by one world government freaks or as Justice Barton called it pure propaganda tell the listeners about Climate Hustle this is really exciting well it's a new movie you go to climatedepot.com right now you can watch the red carpet uh, we had a red carpet movie premiere here at a hundred year old theater in Paris we had protesters police chaos and the film itself is a now for something completely different. It's a global warming comedy. We have in this film, we make fun of all the claims where global warming causes everything. We go back to the, to the beginning and talk about how CO2 is not the controller of climate. We have prestigious scientists, and they're not just the normal skeptical scientists you may, you may have heard of and read about. These are scientists who are politically left-wing, who've never appeared on camera in many cases, speaking out for the first time, talking about how they voted for Al Gore, but they were appalled when they saw his film, French socialists, others who once believed in global warming and then reversed themselves. So the idea that people are going to say, oh, well, it's a bunch of American conservatives that, you know, that don't like the UN, those are the skeptics. No, these are American liberals, anti-war Democrats. And then we talk about what happened to them when they announced their dissent and they've lost jobs. They've been harassed. They've been called heretics. They get intimidated, bullied. They don't get their papers published. And it's all detailed in the film. 
Well, in my book, Green Gospel, Mark, I talk about how we have the most important food for life on Earth. CO2, as you mentioned, being absurdly depicted as a dangerous pollutant totally demonized. We know plants require 150 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the same way we as humans need 30% oxygen in the atmosphere. At 5%, we die. And it's the same. It's their food. It's the food substance of life, if you will. It drives the entire food chain. So they've demonized it as a deadly pollutant. I mean, how absurd is this when you step back and take a macro view? Yeah, we actually have in the film featuring people saying carbon, CO2, pollutant, CO2, pollutant. It is not a pollutant. We exhale it from our mouth. We inhale oxygen. We exhale CO2. It is the gas of life. And we talk about that detail in the film, how they bastardize the English language in order to call carbon dioxide a pollutant. And again, it's all about United Nations. This has nothing to do with science. And I say that for two reasons. A, the head of the UN climate panel, Rajendra Pachari, who just stepped down after a sexual harassment scandal, forced to resign, has said global warming is my religion. And he said, we'll make the report, the next report so alarming, the world will have to act. It's a lobbying organization, just like Greenpeace, just like Sierra Club. And the second point is the EU Climate Commissioner has said that even if we're wrong in the science, we're doing right by policy. In other words, they don't care what the scientists, because they want to essentially plan our economy. They want the UN in charge of wealth transfer. And the IPCC, UN Climate Panel Vice Chair, has actually on record as saying, This has nothing to do with environmental policy. We will redistribute wealth by climate policy. And that's the exact quote. So this is all about an agenda of politics, and they're using scientific claims to run a campaign cause to to achieve it. It's, it's, It's literally that simple, and we can use their own words to show it. Yeah, Pachari said, it's not, it's my religion and my dharma. It's not just my job. Stunning coming from a railway engineer. But, you know, it's human ecology problems and solutions brought to you by the conjoined Marxist twins, of course, Holdren and Ehrlich and their unsavory pals pushing this. Well, I'm so glad that you are down there. I'm sorry you're on the wanted poster, but I can tell you kudos for your work. We'll be definitely looking forward to your new documentary, Wonderful. And again, people can go to climatedepot.com. And of course, the other notorious climate criminal joins us right now, Christopher C. Horner, New York Times bestselling author. Chris, great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. First of all, what is that like, Chris, to go to Paris and suddenly you see your mugshot plastered all over the streets of Paris as a criminal du climate, climate criminal. That's the bigger story here is how to great lengths these people will go to silence anyone who dares to speak out against their agenda. Well, I have to say it, it, we just stopped and laughed and they were all over. In fact, I was standing with several of the Magnificent Seven at the time, uh, Myron Bell and Mark Morano, and we took pictures mugging with the wanted posters, which drove the green activists who were protesting right nearby absolutely berserk. They couldn't fathom somehow that we were having fun with their utter lack of measure, which, by the way, although the New York Times covered this as news, uh, because of a big PR push by these people. In fact, they've been doing this, so far as I can remember, since the Montreal Conference of the Parties in 2005, when I first saw my face plaster all over the wall as a criminal so that whatever unhinged elements of their base would be sure to know what I and others look like. So it's not, they have a very limited repertoire. This is what they do. So I can't, I just, st- I guess my instinct was to laugh and start mugging with the picture. But the better part of it was that these little Stalinists came further unglued seeing that. 
the phrase notorious climate denying groups, I mean, to say notorious climate denying, you know, Naomi Oreska's Harvard likes the idea of charging people under RICO law for this so-called denying. And David Suzuki likes the idea of people being jailed. So, I mean, this is quite frightening, though, isn't it? It is, and I had at least three chap- uh, three chapters that I know of and one subchapter in Red Hot Lies detailing the totalitarian impulse, the authoritarian charge by these people, uh, woe to dissenters, the establishment attacks. I remember the various chapters, which I had to cut down. I have to tell you, it took a lot of effort to cut down the material into my editor's word count for Red Hot Lies because already by a few years ago, this was 09, that book came out, they had established quite a track record, including through these official bodies, of calling for prosecution of speech that they didn't like. Now, the first thing you should consider every time you hear this, and you hear it a lot, and it's always from the same political movement, is they do not feel very confident that they would prevail in a debate on the merits, do they? <laughs> that, that's obviously the case. If you look at the way they seek to muscle scientists, including through litigation, um, various intimidation tactics, making sure nobody can receive funding with them, and so on. This is a movement that knows they stand no chance in what you'd call a fair fight. So they have to make sure that until they can outright ban speech, and I've encountered numerous examples, including some on TV. There were some speakers at a French event here. One showed a clip on TV where the alarmist just completely lost it. At a certain moment, you could see his face. He turned, and something happened, and they said the word was débile. He became, it was worse than crazy. And he turned and he was yelling, how dare you, how dare you? Then he turned to the host and said, this sort of speech should not be allowed. How dare you bring on other opinions? This is how they view the world. And at the root of it, of course, is a knowledge that deep in their hearts they know they're wrong and or they know people will not go along with this, if only because of what they demand or because of of the weakness of their case. You know, we we premiered uh, Mark Morano's movie Climate Hustle here in Paris on Monday night. And it was quite an event, lots of protesters, of course, lots of little trolls around and uh, seeking to shout down and putting up fairly obscene banners and so on. And the reason is what Mark went through. He presented information, the historical record, contrary opinion, including that it's been warmer and it's been colder when CO2 concentrations were higher. It is not a temperature knob. It just is not. It, it, quite obviously, just you compare their computer model projections with observations over the time, and you'll see they're wrong. The reason Al Gore didn't superimpose those two lines during his famous hop onto the hydraulic lift is because if you did actually superimpose them, you could see that what he was implying was the precise opposite of of what was reality. And so I think there's very good reason that they don't want to hear a contrary opinion, but that doesn't make it right, But nor their tactics. So um, it's quite a battle we see ourselves in. There's a, You need to read into this movement when you see how often, for example, in, in violation of all the laws of probabilities, look at all of the scandals that had fallen on that side, all of the, quote, errors, all of the misdeeds, all of the efforts to intimidate. Why is that only on one side? Because they don't have a case. They simply can't make it. If they could, let's put it this way, if they had a coherent argument, we would hear it. Instead, we hear post-normal science, consensus, denier. If, if you point out that climate changes, you're a climate change denier. Well, okay, it's not the most rational movement. (laughs) Not the most rational movement. And then the other part of the coin, Chris, is the fact that all their predictions have failed. Al Gore said on record that New York was supposed to be completely underwater by 2010. 
So again and again, you have these failed predictions, don't you? Well, predictions are hard, particularly of the future. But when you find that everything, all of their indicators from the sea level rise rate, because sea levels rise between glaciations, nobody denies sea levels rise. That's what they do. They have been for hundreds of years since the last glaciation. Slowed down a bit during Little Ice Age. Oh, that's right. Climate changes. Uh, temperatures, storms, snowfall, rainfall, drought, everything they've insisted was to be outside of historical norms isn't. So we're just down to climate weirding, as they call it now. Everything that happens, including, by the way, that's the premise of this treaty here in Paris. Everything that happens is the developed world's fault, and somebody must pay, and by the way, it's you, in perpetuity, every time weather strikes, you're here to fix it. Well, obviously, again, if you go back, since nothing they're proposing, even if you accept all of their assumptions, would impact the climate, it's not rationally about the climate. Since climate changes, and if you point that out, you're a climate change denier, it's not rationally about the climate. Um, since all of their predictions have been wrong, it's probably not. If, if they refuse to consider that everything they said has proved wrong over time, it's probably not about the issue. The issue isn't the issue. The issue is a vehicle, as you and I have discussed. This is an excuse. It's the bus that's coming by. It's the way to get to their nirvana. The policy prescriptions are eerily reminiscent of, of those they demand in the name of everything. But in the face of these Stalinist tactics, and that's what they are, uh, and these people, I'm just reminded of it in the past week I've been here. These are, they, these are armies of little Stalinists. And they probably have, they do have similar economic goals in mind, according to the head of this organization hosting the treaty talks, Christina Figueres. She said, we need to remake the global environment, uh, economic system. China is the model. Their chief economist who said, this is not about environment. We de facto redistribute the world's wealth by climate policy and so on. I don't know how many of these confessions you need before you believe them. Yeah. I have no reason to believe they're lying when they admit this. Well, it must be uh, really uncomfortable to be smacked up right in the middle of this eco-friendly, carbon-neutral, guy-eleven, pagan death cult down there. But, I mean, other than feeling like you're in a bad Twilight Zone episode, were you surprised that John Kerry accidentally admitted the truth about the climate agenda? I have to say, if you listen to the guy... He might, for all we know, be very bright. He just goes to extraordinary lengths to hide it. He says things that, that this, he proves far too much almost every time he opens his mouth. And acknowledging that nothing we could do would detectably impact the climate was a good first step. Um, acknowledging to the Senate recently that they're claiming this treaty isn't a treaty because if they admitted it was a treaty, it would never get to the Senate and so on. The guy's candor is getting us in, in a pretty good situation here. Um, he may have used too many words in that instance for this to resonate, but he did admit it. But again, nobody disputes it. So it was it was nice of him to say that. And maybe we can get him to distill it sometime if, if there's a reporter who wants to actually do their job. But he's been very helpful all along, including just a few months ago, acknowledging that they're not bothering calling treaties treaties because they don't think they can get them through. There isn't the will. Okay. So the public opposes this. I have to tell you, there is no relationship between what's going on here in Paris and the democratic process. And the buzz here all week has been that the U.S. Congress, that is the people's elected, dem democratically elected representatives, the U.S. Congress is the greatest threat to achieving an agreement. Why is that? Because this free society won't do this to itself. So they're going to try to find a way to, around that. Well, that's a big red flag. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of big red flag, Obama on record is saying, forget terrorism. Climate change is our biggest threat. You've got the EPA 
had Gina McCarthy salivating as he turns out this mantra. I mean, those are some pretty frightening words, Chris, to say, hey, forget ISIS. Climate change is our biggest issue. Well, for years, we have seen that there's a great uh, list. I think William Briggs, the statistician, uh, number watch, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, Brignell. John Brignell keeps this A to Z list of what climate has caused. And it's a, it's 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 uh, Bulgarian brothels suffering an economic downturn, increase in alley cats, increase in big cat attacks, <laughs> everything that happens, increase in snowfall, decrease in snowfall, increase in rainfall, decrease in rainfall. Everything that happens has been attributed to climate change. So. When the president, and, and previously, as you know, the Syrian drought back in the last century was, was attributed to yo-yos, and so they banned them in Syria. Now different yo-yos are saying that climate change caused this, well, this, everything. And so for the president to say, well, climate global warming caused the terrorism, therefore this treaty will stop at all, is perfectly consistent. And I have to tell you, I have a, <laughs> well, most of them just seem to understand, I mean, this is nothing Barack Obama knows anything about, right? It's, it's received, for lack of a better word, wisdom, just because that's the term. But they all understand this is what they've agreed to do. But I have a hard time imagining. For all we know, he might believe this. That, that's, that's where I'll leave it. For all <laughs> I know, he might believe it. It's just that is a remarkably thick cocoon they're living in, if that's the case. Well, I guess in, a, in the waning moments, Al Gore explained it perfectly last fall in Toronto to a group of students when he was asked why there was an 18-year cooling trend. And he said this, Chris, and this really explains it. So here we go. Global cooling is a result of global warming. So there you have it. Perfect. Makes sense. How did we not elect this man president? (laughs) We still have a chance. Well, in the waning moments, what really does surprise you? And was there any pleasant surprises coming out of this COP21 in Paris? A a very strong and robust local uh, opposition here. The climate realists in Paris had a wonderful all-day event with... um, with their, I think it's the head. I'm not sure. I was, I was, he was described as the tip of the spear in the French National Academy of Sciences, the director of research for the French uh, National Center for Research, giving presentations uh, and showing how they're being harangued. But anyway, giving presentations on, on climate realism, there was a, a there was a, a bright spot. And I suppose seeing in the last few days just how badly this has evolved back into the Copenhagen Rio um, collapse. You will hear the normal hype, but having seen how quickly it all just became about the money, that was it was it was that was I suppose heartening that somewhere inside these negotiating halls there was some sanity because somehow they could not get everyone to agree to an economic suicide pact. Suicide pact, indeed. Well, I mean, it's been dubbed the day of examining the data. I think there has been some numerous presentations that are, like you said, a bright spot, debunking a lot of this anthropogenic global warming theory. And I think, you know, it's good to know that climate hustles cause some stir. I know a lot of people that watch the video. I'm even getting feedback from climate hustle. It's really the antidote to Al Gore's uh, inconvenient lies there. But Chris, in any event, I'm glad that you stopped by to weigh in and I hope you have a great rest of your visit and and I hope they don't throw you in jail down there. But anyway, Chris, it's always a pleasure. I'll use my one phone call to you, okay? Okay, sounds good. Well, thanks so much for coming back on, Chris. God bless. You too. Bye-bye. And to continue on with the Climate Roundtable is Dr. Calvin Beisner. Calvin, welcome to the program. Good to have you weigh in on this discussion. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure and my privilege. Well, you're joining us just after Mark Morano from Climate Depot and 
New York Times bestselling author Christopher C. Horner just getting off with us talking about the fact that there is such a move down there for these climate dissenters being touted as climate criminals. Kelvin, are you surprised at the absolute level that these people will go to to silence dissent? Well, you know, on the one hand, it's, uh, of course, quite despicable. Uh, and it's also really, Sheila, rooted in their own worldview. Uh, most of them are metaphysical materialists. That is, they believe that matter and energy is all that exists. And so therefore, ideas are simply the product of matter and energy in motion. Well, that means ideas are not the consequence of logical reasoning. And so that being the case, you don't win arguments by logical reasoning. You win arguments by force, because that's all that exists if matter and energy is all that's real. It's the point that C.S. Lewis made in his in a chapter on the self-refutation of naturalism in his book, Miracles. Uh, so on the one hand, it's despicable and, and uh, certainly uh, a matter of concern to those who believe in things like freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of inquiry, academic freedom, and certainly the importance of uh, free dissent to the health of science. Science absolutely requires that, uh, that people be ready and, and willing and welcome to be skeptical about anything. Skepticism is really the heart of science. Uh, but then on the other hand, <laughs> do I find it frightening? No, uh, the, great, uh, the great Puritan Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century told his soldiers in his army, as long as God wants you alive, there isn't a bullet around that can kill you. And when God wants you dead, you can't, <laughs> can't keep yourself alive anyway. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, his soldiers were extremely courageous on the battlefield and defeated much more numerous enemies. Uh, that's my attitude, too. I'm not worried about it. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Absolutely. Well, what's frightening is yesterday coming out of the BBC, it was actually on the um, the UK Daily Mail. Frighteningly enough, Cardinal Peter Turkson from Ghana said that the Catholic Church now needs to revisit its birth control ideologies because we need to curb a rapidly growing population. Do you find that there's always these overtones of depopulation that people just people are not getting what this is about, are they? Sure, and that's absolutely right, and it, it is indeed shocking, and it's uh, really sad that Cardinal Turkson has uh, taken that attitude because it is quite contrary to uh, Catholic teaching, and I think it's quite contrary to the biblical understanding of human beings. We are not principally consumers and polluters. We are principally producers and stewards, and overpopulation is not a, uh, a problem. Uh, indeed, there's no way even to define overpopulation because uh, all of the problems that people associate with what they think is overpopulation are really problems not of population density or population growth rate or age distribution, but rather of poverty. And if you overcome poverty, uh, population density is not a problem. Now, here's the really uh, concerning issue for me, and that is that when you get into uh, committing to control population in order to uh, reduce CO2 emission of, uh, emissions in order to reduce global warming, well, what you wind up with is government family planning programs like China's one-child policy, which, by the way, Christiana Figueres, head of the UN Framework Convention on Climate yes. Change, has lauded. And those policies then lead to sex selection abortions. 
Because in poor countries, a son is seen as the promise of support in your old age, and a daughter is not. And then the result is a huge excess of adult males with testosterone running through their bodies and without uh, females available for them to marry. That creates a demand for pornography and prostitution, which creates a demand for uh, human trafficking. And ironically enough, Pope Francis made fighting human trafficking one of the top priorities of the church when he was first uh, installed as pope. Now he's, he's uh, embracing a policy that would actually increase the very thing he wants to, to shrink. Well, you know, speaking of shrinking, shrinking the population, I am stunned that this is actually on record. But let's take a listen, a 59-second clip of Ted Turner. Let's listen. Not doing it will be catastrophic. We'll have eight degrees, we'll be eight degrees hotter in 30 or 40 years, and basically none of the crops will grow. Most of the people will have died, and the rest of us will be cannibals. Civilization will have broken down. What The few people that are left will be living in a, in, in a failed state like Somalia or Sudan, and, and living conditions will be intolerable. The droughts will be so bad, there'll be no more corn growing. Not doing it is suicide, just like dropping bombs on each other, nuclear weapons is suicide. So we've got to stop doing the two suicidal things, which are nuclear hanging on to our and, nuclear and, weapons. And global and, and then after that, we've got, to, we've got to stabilize the population. When I was born, no, there was So too, what's wrong with the population? I mean, with too many people. That's, what, that's why we have global warming. We have global warming because too many people are using too much stuff. There you go. We have global warming <laughs> because too many people are using too much stuff, Kelvin. Right. Now, the reality is that, of course, there has been no global warming uh, of any statistical significance for the last 18 years and nine months. That's going back to February of 1997. And that means that the warming effect of added CO2 in the atmosphere, which has continued to rise, by the way, must be much smaller than the computer climate models on which predictions of even uh, moderate warming are based. Now, Turner, of course, is citing a temperature response that is way off the charts. The IPCC doesn't suggest uh, 8, 10 degrees of warming in any of its scenarios, certainly within a period of 30 or 40 years, not even within a period of a couple of hundred years. Uh, so Turner is just simply wrong on the facts. But this is not surprising. He has been uh, championing fighting population growth for a very long time. I actually wrote an article uh, critiquing one of his own uh, back in the early 1990s, back when I lived in Chattanooga, and he had an article published in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I wrote a rebuttal to that. So this is, a, this is an old theme for him, and global warming is just a new excuse for pursuing it. Well, and it's stunning. I always think, you know, Marx would salivate at the idea, though, Calvin, of using phony junk pseudoscience to really convince the unsuspecting masses that they are giving Gaia a fever. It's, it's actually stunning when you step back and take a macro view how this really is very much rooted in pagan pantheism. But people aren't seeing that. They're sort of seeing it as this, this very benevolent seeming oneism, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And by the way, uh, Marx, yes, he would salivate at the scientific fraud involved in so much of this, uh, because he also was an economic fraud. There was no good economics in what Marx did, and, and he certainly didn't know the real condition of workers in his day. Uh, he never set foot inside a factory, though he wrote constantly about the terrible abuse of factory workers. 
the reality is that factory workers in England in his day were much better off than farm workers. They had greater health, better diets, more living space, and lived longer lives. So Marx has been uh, basically a fraud from the start, and much of this is likewise. Yes, I definitely agree. Kelvin, I'll ask you the same thing I asked Chris Horner and Mark Morano. Are you surprised at the amount of effort being put into demonizing CO2, the God-given necessary byproduct for life, and how it's been demonized as a deadly pollutant. Think about this. Plants require 150 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the same way that we as humans require 30% oxygen in the atmosphere. It goes to 5%. We die. It's the same for plants of carbon dioxide because that's their food and plants are the food for all life on earth and it drives the entire it drives our entire food chain so for people calvin to take the most important trace gas on planet earth the stuff of life and turn it into a deadly pollutant i mean this is to me the the worst thing to happen to science since galileo or copernicus yeah, it's very poor science and very poor economics alike. And, and Sheila, it's not just that under 150 parts per million plants die, but even above that, at the 280 parts per million of the uh, pre-industrial level, plants were still uh, sucking air, so to right, speak. Right, right. <laughs> they were really hungry. Plants do better the more CO2 is in the atmosphere. And we can summarize it this way. For every doubling of carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, plant growth efficiency increases by about 35%. Uh, Plants grow better in warmer and cooler temperatures, which means that they expand their range into warmer and cooler locations. Uh, And the growing season uh, lengthens as well, both starting earlier in the spring and lasting later in the fall. Plants grow better at higher and lower lower altitudes. They grow better in wetter and drier soils, which again means that they increase their range. Uh, And they they resist diseases and pests better. And they improve their their, uh, fruit to fiber ratio. So the result is they make more food for all animals and for people, and that's most important for the poor who are the most vulnerable to high food prices. Uh, As a result, instead of thinking that CO2 is this pollutant, the warming effect of which is very small, uh, we ought to see it as a great boon to the earth. And indeed, uh, one recent study, uh, sort of an overview of thousands of studies on the plant fertilizing effect of CO2, concluded that from 1960 to 2012, the increased value of crops uh, caused solely by that added CO2 in the atmosphere that we put there was about $3.2 trillion. And as we project where CO2 is going from now to 2050, we can expect about an additional $9.8 trillion worth of food over that period. So in short, adding CO2 to the atmosphere is a very, very good thing to do for plants and therefore for all animals and for people. Well, Dr. Timothy Ball and I joke that we should get power of attorney for the plants. But switching gears a little bit, what do you think they want to do here in Paris? What's the end game with all this, Calvin, do you think? Well, of course, what they, what the organizers hope for is some sort of an enforceable agreement for carbon dioxide emission reductions right away in developed countries and starting fairly soon in developing countries. 
they're not going to get that kind of an agreement. Uh, they've been trying for that for the last 20 years. They will not achieve it this time either uh, because the developing countries realize that, frankly, the use of fossil fuels to, uh, to power their economies is absolutely essential to lifting people out of poverty. And poverty is their big problem. So they're not going to sign on to something like that. And if they don't sign on to it, neither will the developed countries because the developed countries don't want to cut their economic productivity and simply lose jobs and industries to developing countries. So that's one part of their, their aim, and they're probably not going to achieve that. They'll come up with some sort of a, a face-saving, non-enforceable uh, agreement, and they'll say, ah, oh, see, wonderful, we've succeeded here. Well, in fact, they will not have. Now, the other thing that they're aiming for, and the developing countries do want this, is a $100 billion a year fund to which developed countries would contribute to do two things. One, make reparation for all the harm that we've caused by our use of fossil fuels causing global warming over the last century, uh, which is, of course, itself highly debatable. But two, um, helping them to develop their economies using non-fossil fuel energy sources such as wind and solar, which are much more expensive and much less reliable. Uh, that, too, I think is... Uh, well, you'll probably get lip service to it, but again, it's not going to turn out, I think, to be an enforceable agreement. But either one of those, to the extent to which it is achieved, whether enforceable or only on paper, uh, if it does begin to actually affect policy in either the developed countries or the developing countries, the result will be to reduce people's access to the abundant, affordable, reliable energy that is absolutely essential to, to raising and keeping any society out of poverty. This is why the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which is the ministry that I lead, has issued a petition called Forget Climate Change, Energy Empowers the Poor. That's Forget Climate Change, Energy Empowers the Poor, which is on our website, cornwallalliance.org. And we would certainly welcome your listeners to come there, cornwallalliance.org, and sign that petition explaining that they agree with our view that we need to put lifting people out of poverty as a much higher priority than fighting global warming. Because, you know, if you're adequately prosperous, you can thrive in any climate from the Arctic Circle to the Sahara Desert or the Brazilian rainforest. If you're extremely poor, you can't thrive in the most wonderful tropical paradise. Right. Absolutely. Well, certainly we do encourage the listeners to go and check that out. The bookmark is there on today's bio. Now, I was reading this morning in the Sydney Morning Herald, the Paris UN Climate Conference has caused Australia to have some serious concerns about this climate draft. Apparently, they circulated a draft version yes. of a climate change. I guess you could call it a high ambition coalition. <laughs> but, yes. it, but in any event, it's a global agreement to curb greenhouse gas emissions. And when you look at this document, it's actually quite frightening, isn't it? It is. And it's also uh, filled with all kinds of spots where there are things yet to be filled in. Uh, little by little, they've been whittling those down, trying to eliminate them all uh, as they get more and more agreement. But again, I think what we're going to see in the end is not something that's going to be very enforceable, at least anyway, that's my hope. 
Um, the, the problem is that the incentives for the developing nations, especially India and China and Brazil, uh, very large nations with lots of poor people who desperately need to rise out of poverty, and then it's certainly the sub-Saharan African nations that have the worst poverty in the world, the incentive for them is to overcome poverty, which delivers their people from far more risk than reducing global warming does. Frankly, the preoccupation with global warming is a concern of wealthy elites in the West. It is not a significant concern to ordinary people in developing countries, but it is to many of their leaders who see that if indeed they get that $100 billion, billion a year fund, well, that'll be money going from one government to another government. And you know what happens with that? It winds up in the Swiss bank accounts of the thugs who rule those third world countries uh, to provide comfortable retirement for them after they get replaced by new thugs while achieving nothing salutary for the environment. Kelvin, also in the waning moments, tell people about this new project you have and how people can find it. Yeah, that's a new video documentary, a one-hour documentary in which we interview over 30 really outstanding scholars in uh, climate science, economics, uh, ethics, philosophy, theology, on all of these issues related to climate change, climate policy, and so on. Uh, it's called Where the Grass is Greener, Biblical Stewardship versus Climate Alarmism. That's Where the Grass is Greener, Biblical Stewardship versus Climate Alarmism. And it's available online at wheretheegrassisgreenerthemovie.com. That's wheretheegrassisgreenerthemovie.com. This is a great way to learn about this issue fairly quickly, super way to educate your friends about it. If you get a, co a copy of the DVD of the movie, you can show it to friends, uh, make a great Christmas present as well. Well, I appreciate your work, especially in combating the steady barrage of lies that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So kudos for all your work and certainly in this new video documentary. Calvin, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for stopping by to weigh in on this climate panel, this climate roundtable. Appreciate your time and do come back and see us soon. I will be glad to do that. And it's my pleasure as well. Thanks, Sheila, and God bless. And the final guest on this climate roundtable is my favorite, and he's here to weigh in. Dr. Tim Ball, thank you for coming on this climate panel. What is your thoughts about Paris all week? Well, uh, thank you for inviting me as the cleanup hitter here. And I think I can help you make some sense out of what's going on there. It really isn't about stopping the climate change. Kerry's admitted that. What's going on is a power struggle between a group called the BRICS group, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and the rest of the world. And look at the, look at the three in the middle, Russia, India, and China, have all come out publicly and said that they don't agree with the science of climate change, particularly Putin. Uh, they represent 48% of the world's population. They represent over half of the countries at the UN. And ironically, and, and if I can use the term, uh, the West, particularly America and Britain and Canada, getting hoisted on their own petard, because when they set up the Kyoto Protocol, they divided the world up into developed nations and developing nations. And Russia, India and China were put into the developing nations section. 
And the deal was that the developed nations had to pay the developing nations for their sins of producing CO2. That has not changed. And in fact, uh, China is, is, is outraged by the fact that they're listed as a developing nation when they're the largest, second largest economy in the world. But anyway, what they're opposed to the Paris Accord. And the way that they're blocking it is they're saying, hey, you promised to pay us for the damage you've done by producing the fossil fuels and the CO2 you produced. We want our money. And they've increased the amount that they're asking for. In fact, it's over a trillion dollars now. And of course, America now is starting to back off and say, we can't afford to pay you that much. And that's the battle that's going on right now. And Kerry is in there scrambling. And, and of course, Trudeau's already given away 2.65 billion of Canadian money, but that's what is causing the conflict. And of course, it really goes beyond the climate. And what's interesting about it is the people at Paris that use the climate as a political agenda are having it turned completely back on them because now these BRICS nations are using it as an agenda to defeat them. And by the way, to show you how serious those countries are, they've already set up a fund which they've put uh, billions of dollars into to counteract and offset the IMF which, of course, is the clearing agency for the Green Climate Fund, the carbon tax money that, that the developing nations have to contribute. So that's why there's a block. It's being done deliberately by these BRICS nations, particularly the three, because they don't agree with the science, but they don't, they don't want to come right out and say, no, we don't agree with you. They're using the rules that America and Britain and Canada set up and turning it against them. And it's actually a very, very clever ploy. Speaking of clever ploys, it's frightening the lengths that these people will go to to silence so-called dissenters. Multiple attendees had their faces plastered all over wanted posters. Climate du criminel, climate criminals. Isn't that frightening, Tim? Well, it's all part of the uh, 1984 Big Brother you silence anybody that dares to question you, you marginalize them. They've been doing it passively or relatively passively up to now. And you and I have talked about that many times. For example, by calling us global warming skeptics and then changing that to climate change deniers with all of the Holocaust connotations of that. And of course, now the Holocaust connotations have gone on to, oh, well, you're a criminal you're no different than the, the people that we prosecuted at Nuremberg for war crimes. But it's, it's a sign of how much they're losing the battle. If you're in a debate and you come out and say the debate is over, and then people are saying, no, hang on a minute, the debate isn't over. And then you try to marginalize the people that are challenging you by saying, oh, they're, they're skeptics, they're deniers, they're paid by the oil companies. That's what's called ad hominem attacks. You attack the person rather than the, the science or the argument that they're making. And now that, of course, is failing. And so they're trying to make these people look even more dastardly and nasty than they actually are. 
I happen to think uh, this is a sign of, of total weakness. And one of the things, uh, just one quick little story about this, as you know, I do a radio program uh, out of Victoria every two weeks. And a gentleman phoned in and said, my MLA or member of the Legislative Assembly is Andrew Weaver, who's a member of the was a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and, and all of this stuff. And he said, I'd like to have hear a debate between him and Dr. Ball on the radio. The host of the show, Ian Jessup, said, I hope you know that Dr. Weaver has a lawsuit against Dr. Ball. There was a long pause on the line and the guy said, I am absolutely outraged. Whatever happened, not only to free speech, but the right of dissents and skepticism and challenging of, of science theory. He said, this is an absolute outrage. And that's how most of the people believe it. And just to give you a further example of that, I've received money to help with my lawsuits against Weaver and Michael Mann and so on. 1% of the people that have donated have made the comment that we don't totally agree with you, but we absolutely believe that you have the right to say what you're saying. And that is really what is is going on here. Just to sort of sum all of this up, you know, Gandhi said, you know, first they ignore you, and then they laugh at you, and then they attack you, and then you win. And that's the stage that we're in right now in this whole charade of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the use of global warming and climate change for a political vehicle. And as I said, they're being hoisted on their own petard because that's now exactly what these BRICS nations are doing to them. Well, and let's face it, the issue has never been the issue as your book so incredibly lays out. And I mean, even you've got John Kerry conceding, even if the U.S. eliminated all of our domestic greenhouse gas emissions, it wouldn't impact climate. He himself said, and this is a quote, the fact is that even if every American citizen biked to work, carpooled to school, used only solar panels to power their homes, if we planted a dozen trees each, if somehow we eliminated all of our domestic greenhouse gas emissions, well, guess what? That still wouldn't be enough to offset the carbon pollution coming from the rest of the world. Frightening statement from Kerry. Well, it, it's frightening statement, but it's 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 again, it's completely wrong. He's trying to back off and 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 uh, say, well, you know. What's hidden in that statement is what's called the precautionary principle. Well, you know, we, we should do this anyway. He's also confusing CO2, carbon dioxide, a perfectly important and benign gas, with carbon, which is a solid element, as a pollutant. So he, he's talking through the top of his head in, in, in that statement. But it was conceded by Professor Tom Wigley, who was one of the chief architects of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the former director of the Climatic Research Unit at East Anglia, where those emails were leaked from that told everybody what they were doing. Wigley himself said, if the entire Kyoto Protocol was implemented, and that is we took CO2 levels back to pre-1990 levels, if it was completely implemented, nobody would be able to measure the difference in CO2 in the atmosphere. And in fact, I've said many times, if we took everybody off the planet, and notice that Kerry's only restricting it to America because he's saying, oh, well, these other nations are, are 
doing it polluting anyway. So what's the point? But even if we stopped everybody, took everybody off the planet, stopped everything that humans were doing, left one scientist behind, she would not be able to measure any reduction or change in the CO2 level in the atmosphere. That's how stupid this whole thing is. And and so what the Kerry's statement um, it, it's, it's simply another part of the political uh, game uh, where he's scrambling to to cover and, and achieve something that was never necessary in the first place. And and um, <clears throat> so uh, Naomi Klein has said the same thing. She she was a, an advisor to the pope. She said as well that it's not about the, the science or the climate change. It's all about the politics of the socializing of the world, of taking the money from the rich and giving it to the poor. It's a great transfer of wealth agenda, which is really what Kyoto was all about. And that is also, of course, why they got the Pope involved, because the Pope was brought into the issue by John Kerry. You know, he's caught up in this population control and overpopulation, which is really, as you and I have talked about many times, is what's driving all of this in, in behind. So, you know, Walter Scott's comment that what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. This is this is on a, on a global scale, enormous. And uh, as I said, it, it's fascinating to watch. And I just hope that two things don't happen, that people don't suffer too much because of what they're doing, and that uh, science dealing with environmental issues aren't pushed aside because people will say, well, you lied to us before. Why should we believe anything you tell us? That would be a very dangerous situation to be in. Well, and it's so frightening that even President Obama defending his assertion that climate change is, in fact, the biggest threat to humanity, even more than radical terrorism. I mean, is that absolutely staggering to listen to the most powerful man on earth, uh, the president of the United States of America, saying, forget ISIS, climate change, that's our biggest threat. That is just mind-numbing. But think about it. When you look at the front page of the Vatican's website, and you look at the front page of the White House website, they both have scientific lies on them. And what do you do in a world where the two most powerful people in the world are telling you lies? How can you advance from that? But here's an interesting way to look at what Obama said. In a way, in a perverse way, he's right. Because climate change itself is not a threat to the world. It's the way that climate change is being used as a political vehicle that is a greater threat than terrorism. Because if it's implemented, if they achieve what they want to do, and that is get rid of CO2 and fossil fuels and and so on, then the economies of the world will collapse and the world won't be able to fight or stop terrorism. And so in that bizarre backhanded way, what Obama is is saying is frighteningly true. We've got to be very careful of when you get such vacuums of leadership. That is when demagogues step in. We are very, very similar to 1937, 1938, and the vacuum of power that occurred in Europe and particularly in Germany. And of course, that's when you get the demagogues coming forward. In some ways, it's why Trump is so uh, effective in the United States. And so vacuums like that uh, provide 
opportunities for people to come in and just simply grab up the fear and say, follow me and, and lead you into destruction. And so the parallels with that are, are very, very real. I think that that's the greatest threat right now. Could not agree more. Tim, thank you so much for your valuable contribution to this Climate Roundtable. So good to have you on and do come back and see us real soon, Tim. Thank you for the opportunity, Sheila. And once again, thank you for all that you're doing. Thanks, Tim. Folks, that was four incredible men in this Climate Roundtable. Mark Morano, Christopher C. Horner, Calvin Beisner, and Dr. Timothy Ball. Great discussion. I am so glad that you tuned into the program tonight. Don't forget, go to weekendvigilante.com. Like me on Facebook, Twitter, and don't forget to sign up for my YouTube channel and the podcast by going to the Podomatic button there at weekendvigilante.com. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Good night and God bless.